This is Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. I'm Father Yuri Claudio, an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my friend and teacher, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in liturgical theology. And here we are, the first official episode of the third season. We had our intro episode, but this is, you know, the first actual episode where we're diving into something specific, Father Jeffrey. Getting into the meat of it. Yeah, indeed. And we're talking specifically about the prayers for the mother and child. So um, one thing that uh, a lot of people might not be familiar with is that there are a series of prayers that are done, you know, when uh, a mother who's like, let's say an Orthodox Christian family has the mother has given birth, you know, there's prayers Uh, On the first day after the woman has given birth to the child, there's prayers uh, at the time of the naming of the child on the eighth day. Uh, There are prayers for uh, the woman on the 40th day of childbirth, right? And then there's various traditions about, you know, should the, you know, the the mother should maybe stay away from church for 40 days just as a time of recovery. Or there's a lot of, I guess, preparation for welcoming back mother and child to the church. Before we get to any of those specifics, though, Father Jeffrey, I think it'd be worth maybe diving a little bit deeper into that topic of infant baptism. So infant baptism being something that the Orthodox Church um, does for families that are practicing Orthodox Christianity. Um, So a lot of these prayers like the, you know, prayer first day after the woman has given birth, um, they're for the child and the mother, and they're almost seen as a as a prelude to the full uh, welcoming of the child into the church through the sacrament of baptism. So let's maybe start there. We, we baptize babies, but like that, that seems to be uh, what we do, isn't it? Father Jeffrey. (laughs) Well, yeah. In in the introductory episode, we alluded to this briefly. um, And I think it's not a question that's really put in quite those terms. I mean, I know it becomes a, matter of great controversy in in the West, uh, particularly around the time or really that sort of second wave of the Protestant Reformation, what's so-called the the Anabaptist, uh, uh, you know, Reformation, right? Where uh, the first wave of Protestants did did not question the ancient church practice of receiving uh, infants, but there was a kind of second wave, which gives rise to, you know, the various traditions, whether they're called Baptists or whether they're called uh, Mennonites or, you know, uh, and so forth. The Anabaptists um, are those who, and the the word Anabaptist just means to, to baptize again, Right. And and so they were, you know, committed to this idea of believer baptism or of people who were kind of able rationally to confess uh, a faith. And then, you know, baptism was only meaningful after that. So you'd have to be at least teenage or late teens, an adult uh, to, to be received. So that's really where that controversy comes from. And the way the question gets posed there uh, then gets imported, you know, to the East. But it's, I just think from the get-go, we don't really have the same question in the forefront of our minds, right? Um, it's almost not a question. Uh, you know, from the book of Acts onwards, we hear about, you know, people who are convicted in their hearts by the preaching of the apostles. They they receive the Christian message, they confess Jesus as Lord, they want to go 
through that process of being brought into God's covenant family. And as a matter of course, you know, with them come their households, their families, right? Um, and I mean, because of the thinking about the way the church is constructed as you know, the extension of God's covenant relationship with Israel, uh, his covenant family, that we are all sons and daughters, we are all reborn into new creation. All of that way of thinking about the church, it quite naturally extends to to all, right? And it's it's almost like it happens without even really posing a question, oh, where are the limits of who should be received through this process? You know, are there criteria? Well, no, the criterion is simply this response of faith and love to God's invitation, right? So the, the apostles preach, people respond, and then with them, they bring everyone and everything in, in, in their household, in their family, and so forth. And so at no point do you actually find in the early church a discussion of this question. It's just, it's done as a matter of course. And I think it is to do with the way that the church is thought of, you know, kind of as a family. And I think if the question were to be posed, if you were to take that 17th century question and go back, people would be very bemused, you know, by it. And they would wonder, you know, about how you've constructed it, about and what do you mean you have to have some kind of rational, you know, ability to understand? Sure, none of us understand, you know, all we know is God loves us and we are responding, you know, out of love and, and faith and it's all grace, isn't it? So, uh, you know, I, I just think, you know, there's, there's a wrongness about even posing the question, you know, do Orthodox, you know, accept infant baptism? Well, you know, it's very hard to ask the question in a way that you can get a, a meaningful answer. Now, the fact that the practice continued over many centuries, and we said this in the introductory episode as well, that, you know, the normal practice is that, you know, it's for people who are a little bit older, including, you know, a lot of adults, even people who were born into Christian families would be you know, would wait, but it wasn't on the basis on which the question is, is set in the 17th century, right? It has, it actually in the early church had far more to do with this idea of, um, you know, that with baptism, we are remade, we are a new creation, and we are essentially made saints, right? And the, the business from that day forward is to implement what is, right? With our rebirth, in baptism with our personal Pentecost, the descent of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We are we have all the gifts to be saints. So the job then is to implement that, to draw down on that, not to kind of earn our way to that, right? It's not the beginning of a process. It's, it is the eschatological moment of entering the kingdom. And so some, you know, and or you know, in fact, a, a great deal of people would have thought, well, actually, what is the way back if you do that and then you kind of mess up, right? And so until the sacrament of confession emerges and has a whole complicated history, we could maybe do a whole podcast or series on that at some point, Father Yuri, but the, until that happens, there's a real reluctance. And the, the debate in the early church is not about whether infants should be received, but whether is it possible that having been baptized that you can fall away and then come back, right? And there's a good deal of debate over that. Some of the early, you know, authorities and, and church fathers will, will say quite clearly, no, this is, it's a once for all deal. So you better be very careful. Now, they're not thinking about, you know, ordinary 
day-to-day sin, but about big things, right? About what happens if you go and offer incense to the emperor or you adjure Christ or you, you know, you uh, do something serious like murder, adultery or what have you, uh, you know, is there a way back? And for centuries, there isn't, right? Until finally, you know, the penitence and confession come along. And, but that's where the debate is. Can, you know, can you be baptized, fall away, and then come back? Is there a second chance? Well, eventually confession becomes that second chance. It's actually even referred to as a second baptism, not quite an anabaptism, but, but, a, but a second, you know, a rediscovery of the grace of that first baptism. But that's the debate of the early church, not whether you know, there's a, some sort of, you know, level of achievement you need to get to before you can be baptized. So the, the thought is that an infant, uh, somebody with mental challenges, somebody with a, a lack of speech, uh, somebody with, you know, op- you know, there's no limit to where God's grace can go with this. The response is one of faith in the heart. It's a mystery. There's none of us understand any of it anyway. So how can you kind of set a, a criterion of you need to achieve this or do this? in order to earn your way. So in a kind of funny way, the Protestant, that second wave of Protestant Reformation in the Anabaptist one introduces a kind of works righteousness. In, you know, you have to be able to do this work of confession, rationally of faith before you can earn your way to baptism. We're much more focused on God's grace and the idea that all are welcome within that. So if you belong to a family that's being received in the church, you're going to be just swept up in that tide of grace that will bring you forward. And I say it never even comes up as a question. It really doesn't until, you know, 1700 years later when this happens in the West and then Orthodox are scratching their heads saying, well, what do we even think about this? And by then, you know, the 1700 years of, yeah, infants receive, but, but I say in the middle Byzantine period, about a very different kind of uh, of thinking about it, you know, it, it's more kind of toddlers or, or, you know, early, um, early childhood, but with that capacity for memory. And I think, you know, that's an interesting thing that we can think about as we go through the whole service of baptism, think about why we might want people to actually remember this sacramentally, this experience of it. That's a very different question from having earned it. This is more about how it can possibly continue to benefit you, particularly in light of you need to stick to your baptism. You need to live it out. You need to implement it and not just accept the fact that this is your ticket to salvation or something. I'll share a story with you about my best friend. So he comes from an Anabaptist tradition, and we were one day talking about baptism. And we're talking specifically about the the different... Well, in the Anabaptist tradition, it's sort of a believer's baptism where you have to be able to profess your faith in front of the community, right? You have to sort of give your testimony, so to speak, and then you can get baptized, right? And I know of people who don't get baptized because they just don't want to do any public speaking. Um, But we were talking about baptism and I was trying to explain that Orthodox idea of, yes, we can indeed, and we do baptize infants, but trying to kind of properly explain it. And I wasn't doing a very good job. And then, and then he says to me, he's like, Yuri, in the Orthodox church, salvation means belonging to a community. And you know what? Babies can belong to communities. So there you go. I was like, oh, well, yeah, that, that's yeah. kind of, that's kind of a great way to explain it. I don't know. Do you want to react to that, Father Jeffrey? No, but that, that's kind of what I'm, I'm suggesting from, from the early church, why it wasn't even a question, right? Because, you know, 
would you even say that? I mean, if I take this out of the, the kind of church context or, or whatever, I mean, would you say about any given family that, oh, well, you know, you know, here, here's the mother, the father, the older children, everything. They clearly all belong to this family. But here's the newborn infant, not yet a member of the family, right? We'll have to wait and see, you know, when that child can articulate some sort of, you know, rational commitment to, to being part of that family. Then we'll know, you know, whether they properly are part of that family or not. I mean, that's a completely irrational proposition. And I don't think that's ever even crossed anybody's mind. Well, if the church is a family, it's the family of God, you know, why would you introduce this, this level of kind of achievement or accomplishment or works in, into it? I mean, we don't have to earn our way into our families. It's just you know, de facto, you know, where, where we are. And so on that level, you know, we just don't even think of that. Now, the interesting question, and that goes, goes to the topic of, of this particular episode, you know, when you do wait, right, for that, the, the full sacramental initiation into, in the mysteries of initiation into that family, right, of, of baptism, chrismation, and receiving divine communion. So if you do wait, you know, whether it's as a lot of people did in the early church to, to adulthood, or whether you do it to teenage years, or just simply to that you know, kind of threshold of memory, which is, I think, what the middle Byzantine period was all about, waiting to about age three, four, five. Um, you know, what do you then do to kind of prayerfully bless, you know, those early members of that community before they can be full sacramental participants? And that's where these prayers emerge, really. We don't have uh, a tradition of them, you know, in terms of a written form or extant, you know, uh, you know, forms of them until about the eighth century. And they're all about, you know, none of them of the prayers at that point are for the mother. That will, Those come much later, about the 12th or 13th century. But by the eighth century, we have prayers that are about saying something about acknowledging the uh, the belongingness of that child, that baby within the community, but you know, more or less kind of making them catechumens, making them those preparing for full uh, participation, which is expected, anticipated, and hoped for. And so, uh, I mean, given the fact that, for example, you know, between birth and the age of three, four, five, if they're being baptized at that point, they are going to be present. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that still by, at that time, catechumens are excluded from the second part of the divine liturgy. They're, they're welcome, the first part, the liturgy of the word, the so-called liturgy of the catechumens, right, where they can hear the scriptures, hear the preaching, hear the prayers of the faithful, but then they are dismissed. But what do you do with a two-year-old or a 12-month-year-old, you know, um, a 12-month-old baby uh, who is present because the mother is breastfeeding or they just have no other you know, care available to them. So these prayers emerge essentially to safeguard the uh, attendance, the participation within that community during the liturgy of the faithful, the liturgy of the Eucharist, the second part of the liturgy, where by that point, all those who were not uh, capacitated really to receive the Eucharist had been dismissed. So you have this unique situation. Some essentially catechumens are still there. So what do you do with them? So that's where this, this tradition of praying, um, the, the kind of churching, the, this welcome into the, the, the family of God and a kind of pre-anticipation of baptism and so forth. But you're still waiting, you know, which 
now may still follow very quickly. You mentioned in our intro episode about the Ukrainian Orthodox practice that the children are baptized on the 40th day. Well, then the churching of the child is happening at the same time or right before the, the baptism, essentially. Maybe part of the churching before and then part right after, right? And I think, you know, a lot of the service books kind of reflect that practice. But in you know, middle Byzantine period, you know, we're talking 10th century, something like that, it would be traditional that the, the child is there from the 40th day, you know, with his or her mother, but maybe baptized at age four, let's say. So for that period, you need a, a kind of extra prayer, extra blessing, and that's where these prayers emerge. And we've got this idea of a, uh, even before they're made kind of formally catechumens, we'll be talking in a separate episode about the catechumenate, but we have these blessings of the the infant. So the very first ones we have from the 8th century or so are about the baby, the, the, this newborn, this infant, about sort of making them part of the community in anticipation of a full sacramental participation, which may have been a few years later. The podcast you're listening to reflects only the public half of the overall project of enacting the kingdom. Father Jeffrey and I actively post new episodes on our completely separate private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate and discuss open and sometimes controversial questions regarding the Orthodox faith amongst a smaller and more dedicated audience. If you become a patron now, you'll get immediate access to our growing backlog of private episodes, including a discussion on the ordination of women and the coronavirus multiple spoon controversy. To get access to our private podcast, go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. Looking forward to having you join our growing community on Patreon. Now back to the show. Yeah, so just to clarify, uh, there's there's the service of there's the actual like sacramental service of baptism that exists but then there's these pre prayers for certain classes of people right one of them being catechumens and we're going to talk about that next episode that's one category of people the people who are being instructed in the faith that will eventually get baptized but then you also have this other class of people and it is babies who are part of practicing orthodox families Right. So, you know, they're not part of the catechumenate in that they're not being instructed in like a formal education sense because they're literally babies, but they are being instructed, I guess, in, in within that family unit. And th- and then we have these prayers for mother and child, which are not actually part of the baptism ceremony. Like these are kind of separate prayers of preparation to prepare the mother and the child to be received back into the church and then eventually towards baptism. Am I, am I getting that right? Yeah. No, in a rational <laughs> implementation of, of all of this, that's precisely how it would look, right? We have, and we'll talk about in the ne- 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 next episode about the making of a catechumen, which involves, you know, exorcism and, and all kinds of things that really is predicated on a kind of, adult convert, you know, to, uh, to the church, right? And, and, you know, it's connected with Lent and, and so forth. And we'll get into all of that. But towards the end of that, there's this kind of, and call this person, you know, in due time to baptism, right? Well, we, that same language occurs in these prayers on the 40th day for the child. And as 
you know, they emerge in the eighth century. And we have the, the same idea, you know, the, the, you know, bless this child together with his or her parents and his or her sponsors, count him or her worthy in due season of the new birth through water and the spirit, number him or her with your holy flock of rational sheep who are called by the name of your Christ. So already part of the rational flock, but being called in due time to baptism, to chrismation. And so essentially what these prayers for the child on the 40th day are, you know, that's the making of a catechumen, right? You don't need then to apply the service of the making of a catechumen to people in that category, those who are in a Christian household who are already, because they're part of that, that community, considered you know, to be, you know, participants in, in that wider family. They have to yet go through the fullness of baptism, but they are already kind of grafted into the community in that way. So these are the prayers of making a catechumen for people in that situation. You wouldn't therefore repeat them in a rational implementation of all of this. Now, what happens usually is that both these prayers are prayed and, you know, right at the moment of baptism, the full, you know, prayers of exorcism and, and making a catechumen. So it, we kind of double up a little bit, you know, on this. But here's, you know, where the, the two things come from two different places, but they're both directed towards the same end purpose and telos here of bringing people into the fullness of the kingdom through new birth in water and spirit. Some parents might note that it is prayers for the mother and child, right? The the father is not super central in these in these prayers. And my understanding, Father Jeffrey, maybe we could talk a bit more about this, is that you know, these preliminary prayers that are meant to sort of contextualize, I guess, the act of bringing a life into the world, right? Within the context of the church and what that means. And then, and then also laying the groundwork for the re-entry into the community. One of the ways that I understand this is, you know, that there is a tradition of, of basically not putting the Sunday obligation upon uh, a woman who has just given birth, right? This idea that like, well, we have to get to church to receive communion, but you've just given birth. So stay home, right? Like recover take your time, right? Your, your body needs to recover. And that these prayers are sort of built into that tradition of, of recovery, I guess. Is, is that correct? Yeah. I mean, to some extent, the, that's a recasting of, of the tradition. I mean, the, 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 the reality is these prayers don't emerge, the prayers for the mother on the 40th day, until about the 12th or 13th century. And, you know, we can be pretty sure about that because we have, you know, we can't be so sure about things before the 8th century. So when we see things emerge in the 8th century, like these prayers for the child, uh, we don't know how far they go back because we just don't have manuscripts before then. But we have a lot of manuscripts from the 8th through the 12th and 13th century. So by the time something emerges in the 12th or 13th century, we could be pretty sure it's a relatively new thing because it's not in the earlier manuscripts, if that makes sense. So, and this is right before printing press comes along and where these things get codified in a way that now Orthodox think of as kind of immutable, unchangeable, you know, this is for all time because it's in print. It's in a, a book, you know, with a cover. And, you know, my goodness, it's always been that way. Wasn't this what the apostles were doing becomes, you know, the way of thinking. But until then, liturgy is a lot in flux. But by the 12th or 13th century, for whatever reason, and it can be traced to lots of different things, uh, but there's a, a kind of re 
repackaging of the old covenant notions about ritual purity. Now, I'm going to be very clear here. The gospel itself deals with what ritual purity is all about. And Jesus refocuses our attention from bodily impurities, you know, which exists clearly in the Torah, in the in the Jewish law, the old covenant practices and so forth. There were certain things that happened that made you ritually impure. And what impurity meant was you were not capacitated precisely to be at worship in the temple, to offer sacrifice, to to be in a kind of full liturgical participant in in the covenant. You had to be excluded and then readmitted, and you had to go through forms of purification, you know, things like mikveh, the, the, the ritual bath and so forth, which was the kind of precursor to baptism, which is interesting, right? So, you know, for example, on a monthly basis, women were deemed ritually impure because of their, you know, monthly period and so forth. And men, you know, with emissions, uh, nocturnally or otherwise, were deemed ritually impure, had to be readmitted through a process of purification. So all of this exists in the Old Covenant. Jesus in the Gospels relocates impurity to a matter of the heart, right? He says it's not outside things, whether it's washing your hands or all of these issues of impurity, but what comes out of the heart that makes you impure. So things like judgment and and cursing and and envy and malice and, and so forth, these are the things that make us impure. So up until, you know, from the gospel forward until about the 12th or 13th century, that ritual purity idea is largely absent right, from the Orthodox tradition. But suddenly, you know, it gets re-imported around this consideration of childbirth. So under Jewish tradition, and we know our Lord's mother herself did this on the 40th day, went to be purified. The purification on the 40th day of the mother after childbirth was all part of that Jewish law. That was done away with. Jesus, yes, was brought as an infant. We, you know, the whole story of the meeting of the Lord in the temple and everything. But that was predicated on an Old Testament ideas about impurity. That was replaced. But by the 12th or 13th century, it's coming back in. So now no longer do you have just prayers for the child to make the child a catechumen, essentially, uh, within this Christian household. You now have prayers to get rid of the defilement, the uncleanness, the ritual impurity of the mother. Right. That having gone through the process of childbirth, which involves, you know, a lot of blood, a lot of, you know, emission of bodily fluids and and so forth. It's a messy business. Um, But, you know, Christianity had until that point really gotten away from the idea that that made one impure. It was just part of life. But, you know, what makes us impure is it's what comes out of our hearts. But now suddenly we re-import these categories in, you know, in, in relation to childbirth and the woman is deemed impure. So you mentioned the father's not mentioned. Well, you know, he didn't get messy through this process, right? I mean, his business was done nine months before. So at this point, the woman is excluded from the liturgical community for those 40 days, and then has to re-enter by some undoing of the uncleanness of the ritual impurity and so forth. So that's the, that's the kind of textual liturgical reality that's being reflected. As I say, it's contrary to the gospel. It undermines, it inverts the gospel in, in a big way. Now, the cast that you gave to it, I think, is a much gentler and friendlier and maybe more in keeping with the gospel way of approaching it. It's, I've presented this, you know, myself to, to people because in fact, there, there are canons that say you are, are to be at every Eucharistic assembly, right? So every 
you know, the canons say that if you miss three Sundays in a row and you're in, in, in town and have no good reason to have been missing, then you are actually excommunicated and you need to come back through confession. Well, what this grace period of 40 days says, particularly, you know, until very recently, childbirth was a, a life and death matter, right? A lot of women died in childbirth because of germs and bacteria that we didn't know about. And so people weren't necessarily sterilizing the equipment and hands and everything being used in this. And women died of infections at, in tremendous numbers. Just go to visit a 19th century graveyard and you will see how many young women are dying about a day after their child also died or whatever. You just very makes for very sad reading. Well, in that sort of situation, you want to make every precaution so that the woman is given a chance to recover full health and, and so forth. So I, I, I like the idea of saying you're you're excluded from the necessity of being in church. You got like six weeks essentially, and you know when you do come, we'll welcome you back. But that's not what the prayers are saying. I think we could retain something of this, you know, with all of the tradition of that and the connection with our Lord and His Mother. I think people want to do that too, but really take it out of that idea that the woman has actually somehow sinned or transgressed by, you know, the messiness of childbirth. Because what an extra burden that is to weigh upon people who are going through this tremendous mystery of, of giving birth, bringing new life into the world. To, it's, to put guilt onto that and shame and impurity seems to me highly unchristian and contrary, you know, to the gospel. But we can sort of say, actually, take the six weeks, you know, form that bond with your child and and you know it's not even just because today the the, the issues of maybe the 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 the, the cleanliness of that and the germs and everything we've we've largely got rid of that and thankfully a lot of women you know survive most women survive childbirth in a way that they hadn't before um, but we still have this idea of the latching on of the child and a, you know intimate breastfeeding and frequent breastfeeding and care and everything and to give that six weeks I think is a highly pastoral thing to do so let's do that but that, let's make the prayers reflect then that, right? And pray for the whole family, father and mother. Pray for that attachment, for that bond, for that that care. Pray for the, the great mystery that they participated in. All of that is actually absent, you know, from these prayers. And I think there's been a lot of discussion more recently. Uh, the Ecumenical Patriarchate has taken a, a great lead in this. In fact, has said, don't use the prayers as they exist from the 13th century. These are not appropriate. They don't reflect the gospel. And some efforts are being made to kind of introduce something new. So let's not throw proverbially the ba the baby out with the bathwater <laughs> um, let's retain all of the you know the goodness of, of the interpretation you gave to it there about the, the the kind of extra care and concern that we have for the family and then just make it a celebration of the the life that has been brought into the world again welcoming the child as a catechumen but welcoming the bonding of that family together and all of the the wonderful natural beautiful things that are happening you know through that i mean it's it's okay to have a little bit of that tinge of of sinfulness about it cuz everything that we do is tinged with sinfulness but let's not locate a kind of deep ritual impurity and uncleanness and defilement in the actions that have taken place i think that's just you know we, it, we still know about things like postpartum depression that women can be susceptible to because of hormonal changes and everything i mean why would you go out of your way to provoke something like that by saying 
by the way, on top of everything else, you should be guilty and ashamed of what has just happened. And my goodness, it's just not pastorally what we should be doing. So some rethinking should happen around this, particularly given how late and inappropriate these these prayers uh, were in their origin. Well, we've hit our time, Father Jeffrey, but I want to give you the opportunity. Is there anything else you want to bring up specifically about the prayers of the uh, for the mother and child? Um, we'll maybe touch on this at, at some other episode in, in the series, but let me just mention that there's this further dimension to it, because at the time of the, the prayers for mother and child on the 40th day, there's also the so-called churching, uh, which takes place where the, the child is, uh, you know, again, imagining a, a small infant, because you wouldn't imagine uh, anybody larger than that being carried in, uh, but taken up in the arms of the presbyter and very reminiscent to Simeon receiving our Lord. So this is a beautiful thing. And in fact, entering into the church while the presbyter is reciting the prayer of St. Simeon. And I refer people back to that episode, the several episodes that we talked about the song of Simeon in Vespers and how beautiful that is. So all that's really, really lovely. But then there's this further complication of the tradition of taking the child uh, into the, the the altar area, into the sanctuary behind the holy table and, and making a circuit as some of those prayers are being prayed. Initially, that was babies uh, who were male and female, but only after the time of baptism, because you couldn't imagine an unbaptized person, even if they had been made a catechumen, being brought in through that circuit. Um, So that was a post-baptismal thing, but that kind of got joined together with these prayers on the 40th day. So then you got unbaptized people because they were not yet, you know, they'd just been welcomed into the church on the 40th day doing that. And then, you know, because of kind of more modern, uh, basically sexism and so forth, because a lot of our, our kind of male dominating female ideas come from the modern period, not from ancient ideas. Uh, you got the, the tradition, which exists particularly among Slavs of only boy babies being brought, you know, around the altar. And the service books will even say that from the 16th, 17th century, you know, onwards. If it's a male child, you bring, even unbaptized, into the altar around the holy table. If it's a female child, you deposit her on the steps of the solea, the up, up to the, the kind of platform in front of the iconostasis. And that there's a lot of problematic about that uh, as well for, for all kinds of, of reasons. But essentially, that if that if we do that thing about the 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 carrying into the into the holy of holies into the altar area it really ought to be post baptismal although at that point if you've received divine communion you know it seems a little bit superfluous but still could be a lovely tradition but it certainly should be male and female no distinction you know made uh, between them um or you just simply locate the the bringing into the church with the prayer of saint simeon on the prayers of the 40th day but you don't enter into into the altar because really nobody who's not baptized should be ever going back there you go there if you have a good reason you're baptized and uh we all have access to that because of our baptism not because of you know we're male or female or what have you so i mean that's a very short description of all that maybe it'll come up again as we we talk about uh different parts of the service as we go through this series Yeah, thank you very much to our audience. Uh, Stay tuned for next week's episode where we go through uh, what it means to be a catechumen and what does that look like and how does that relate to the journey towards baptism. So we'll see you next week. Enacting the Kingdom is a patron-supported show, and if you're not a patron, you're only getting half of everything we create. If you'd like to join our growing community of supporters, please go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. 
Your patronage goes a long way to keeping this show going. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.